praying for your anointing on on Brock um, as he has studied and prepared and um, and listened for you. We just pray that you would put your words in his mouth, and Lord, that you would help us by your grace to have open ears and hearts to receive uh, what you would have for us to hear tonight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, good evening. It's been a few months for me to be up here, so <laughs> glad to be up here on a Wednesday with you all. And tonight, we are going to be back in the 11th chapter of the book of Mark. And as we set the stage for this 11th chapter, uh, I just want to remind you of a few things. So first of all, this uh, gospel was written to a predominantly Roman audience who had a very fast-paced now culture. So things were moving quickly. And so the book of Mark, one of the key words that we've talked about is the word immediately. So immediately Mark moves through. These first 10 chapters have really flown through the first 33 years of Jesus' life. And I bring that out because to begin this 11th chapter, the pace is going to change. So it's really a complete departure from what we've been where it's, it's very quick to now these next five chapters from uh, chapter 11 through chapter 15 now will all cover the Passion Week. So I like what one uh, Bible scholar said is that the Gospel of Mark is really a passion story with a really long introduction. So you guys have been through this long introduction now of weeks and weeks and months. And now here we are, we're at the, the beginning, at the precipice of the Passion Week. So, and as we make our way that direction, uh, last week Pastor Mike shared from Luke 9.51 that Jesus had set his face towards Jerusalem and the coming events. So what coming events are we talking about? Well, if you would, before we get to Mark, let's turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1. In verse 19, I'll start. But with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead, and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So the events that he is setting his face towards like Sly Stallone up here, the face of determination. I couldn't think of a better face of determination than Sly and Over the Top. So if you're not an Over the Top fan, sorry about that. Maybe you're a fan of the little baby. Very determined. But really what, what his determination is, is this is thousands of years, even before creation. Think about that with me. Even before creation, this plan for redemption was set in place by the triune Godhead. And Jesus Christ volunteered, not forced, but on his own will, decided he would be the one that would come in and fulfill this next week of events. It's pretty humbling when you think about it. You know, we, we try to say that we love one another and we love people, but do you love someone that much? To even before you create them, you know you're going to have to die. You're going to have to suffer, and yet you do it anyway. So something to think about as we start off this evening. And so if you would, begin with me. Uh, in the 11th chapter, starting with verse 1. We're going to cover these first 11 verses to begin with. And uh, this is the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11. Now, when they drew near Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite you, and as you, and, 
And as soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has set. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it. And immediately he will send it there. Try that, by the way, the next time you decide to get a vehicle. Just go to Turner Chevrolet and uh, go ahead and get in a truck and then take off. And when somebody asks you what you're doing, just say, well, the Lord has need of it. So let me know how that goes for you. Uh, I'll be there. I'll be there waiting to see. So they went their way and they found a colt tied up by the door outside on the street and they loosed it. But some, some of those who stood there said to them, what are you doing loosing the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded. So they let them go and they, and then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their clothes on it and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road and others cut down leafy branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he had looked around at all things as the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So I listed for you there the parallel passages that cover this triumphal entry. And what we're going to do uh, with this first section is we're going we're to dig into a little bit of prophecy. So if you're not a prophecy buff, now would be a great time to use the restroom for the next several minutes. And if you are a prophecy buff, hopefully I can do a little bit of justice. But beginning with Jesus' entry into the city on a donkey, notice the, the vehicle he chose to use. He didn't choose a war horse. He instead chose something that's very peaceable. I think that's important. If he would have rolled up onto the city gates in a Sherman tank with, a, with a, the words that I come in peace, I think we would think something a little bit different. Even though he's saying he's trying to be peaceful, we can tell very much by the vehicle that he came in on that he's not there for peaceful purposes. And it's very similar to in 1 Kings uh, chapter 1, verse 33, when Adonijah had decided he was going to uh, be the next king uh, and surpass his father David. David was getting older at this point. Absalom had already passed off the scenes and been killed. And Adonijah decided, hey, I'm going to be the guy. I'm it. I'm the next one in line. But David and the Lord had very different plans for Solomon. So in uh, chapter 1, verse 1, or uh, chapter 1, verse 33, Saul, uh, what David says is this. Uh, he says, the king also said, take with you the servants of the Lord, and have Solomon, my son, ride on my own mule and take him down to Gihon. So this is showing that there is uh, past precedence for kings riding through the city peacefully, pronouncing themselves as the next king. And that's really what Jesus is doing in this spot. He is pronouncing himself as the king as he enters into the city. So looking at some of the prophecy aspects of this, let's turn to Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. So Zechariah, go to Psalms and go to the right. Not all of you got to cheat like I did with the little tabs. Sorry about that. So as we make our way that direction in the book of Zechariah, what he says in chapter 9, verse 9 is this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, Zechariah had prophesied around 520 B.C. 
So he was a contemporary to Haggai. And we're looking at roughly 550 years it took for this prophecy to be fulfilled. So here it is, the, the king riding in with salvation, lowly, and riding on a donkey. But notice, if you would, with me, the next verse, it says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow will be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations, and his dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. It sounds like two very different prophecies when we look at it. And that's where we start to get into these two comings of the Messiah. This first one, lowly, riding in on a donkey, bringing salvation. The second one, cutting off uh, the chariot from Ephraim. So very, very much a different view of these two pictures of the Messiah. And what uh, John says in chapter 12 in his gospel, I think sheds a little bit of light on where the disciples were at this point. Because, you know, we see this prophecy being fulfilled, and I think given thousands of years to look at it, we can have the idea that, well, why didn't they see this? Why didn't they know and understand what exactly was going on? And if you look in in the Gospel of John in the 12th chapter in verse 16, what John says is, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered, and these things were written about him, and that and that they had done these things to him. So after the glorification, after Jesus was resurrected and they saw the resurrected Christ, they understood all the resume he was building along the way. Everything he was doing, everything that was fulfilling prophecy, these guys weren't uh, Bible scholars. You know, These were fishermen. They weren't as, as studied and as learned in the Word. And so these things then become more clear. And so as, as these events take place, they can begin to assemble them and put them in with the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you would look at with me at Psalm 118, as we look at a little more prophecy that was fulfilled in Psalm 118, verse 26. As I give you a second to turn there. In Psalm 118, verse 26, it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. So the people are proclaiming, blessed is he who comes. So this, this psalm begins to be uh, filled out. And this, this begins to be uh, uh, this prophecy that, that maybe didn't look at first like a prophecy. But what I think is interesting about this section is this is the same psalm that Peter preached from in Acts chapter 4. So in the fourth chapter of Acts, Peter and John have to appear before the Sanhedrin. They healed a man outside of the gate called Beautiful, and they, the Sanhedrin, they're all ticked off. And so they call Peter and John in, and they want to talk to him about this Jesus of Nazareth. Now, this is after Pentecost and after the Holy Spirit has been outpoured on these guys. And what Peter does is he goes back to this 118th Psalm, and he goes up a few verses to verse 22. And he preaches on this, that the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So now you get this idea that, that these guys have been following Jesus around. They've been learning, but they hadn't quite understood everything that they learned up to this point. But here's Peter in this spot where he's called and he's got to appear. And what happens? He, he goes back to a place where he recognizes, okay, this prophecy is being fulfilled. 
now I'm digging through this psalm, and wait a second, guys. The stone which the builders rejected, that's Jesus. Jesus is this chief cornerstone. It begins to make sense, and he uses that to build and actually deliver a, a beautiful message to the Sanhedrin to explain to the guys in not such a delicate way that, oh, by the way, this Messiah you're looking for, you just killed him. He was your chief cornerstone, just like the stone that was rejected. And I think what that speaks to to me is, God in our lives, as we go, he's always building upon things. So if you think you've got experiences in your life, maybe it's when you weren't even walking with him that all these experiences and all these things are really adding up to an opportunity for us to fulfill his will. They're really adding up to an opportunity. When we get put in that spot, we've got something to go back to and call on. So if you're digging into the word it gives you an opportunity to actually bring that up and pull that out of your memory bank to where you can, you can build upon the foundation that he set forth for you. And a lot of times, we, we don't even know that we're being uh, brought along in this way. You know, Peter, when, when they're in this spot, they don't even know or understand where Jesus is going with this. And now, when the time comes, through the, the Holy Spirit octane that they get at Pentecost, he's able to actually share this message and he brought it right from this same spot where, where the Father had actually taught them from this place. So the other thing, uh, or a couple other things I want to point out is this eastern gate entry. So when Jesus is entering into the city, he is entering through this eastern gate. And if you can see the picture to the bottom right, um, that it's a really hard to tell on the screen. But past that tree line, you can see the walls of the city of Jerusalem. This is present day. And you can actually see a little raised section of wall right there. That is the current day Eastern Gate. And it is right now blocked in. So the Muslim, Solomon the Magnificent, what a great name, about 500 years ago decided that he was going to have a great plan to stop the Messiah. I'll put brick up in the entrance. That'll stop him. So then the Muslims also put graves over the top of right in front of this gate. Because they knew any real Jew, any true Jew, isn't going to want to defile himself by stepping over on top of bodies. So he blocked all this area in to stop the Messiah from his entry. And in Ezekiel chapter 43, Ezekiel says this in a vision that afterward, in the first verse, he brought me to the gate and the gate that faces toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came the way of the east, and his voice sounded like a rushing water. So Ezekiel's sharing this vision of the glory of the Lord actually coming through this eastern gate. What I think is also interesting, if you flip back a chapter, we'll see this, that in, 44, in, verse, in chapter 44 and verse 1, and then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary that faces toward the east, but it was shut. And the Lord said to me, this gate will be shut and will not be opened and no man shall enter it. So this is actual prophecy for the shutting, the closing of this eastern gate. So Solomon the Magnificent doesn't even realize he's actually fulfilling prophecy 500 years ago by blocking in this gate so that no man is going to enter it. And I won't uh, dig into this right now too much, but in the 14th chapter of the book of Zechariah, he actually talks about Jesus with his feet planted on the Mount of Olives, which is actually this vantage point, and that mountain is going to split, and there's going to be a split all the way up through this gate. So he's actually going to break through all that stuff whenever he comes back on his second coming. So all their great plans to actually stop the Messiah are going to be completely foiled as this valley opens up. 
And in reality, if, if you really want to dig into this stuff, this eastern gate that he blocked up isn't even the gate that Jesus walked through. Because in 70 AD, when the entire city was leveled, uh, that the city was then rebuilt on top of the old city. So in 1969, a gentleman actually accidentally, as he was noodling around looking for, uh, he was an archaeologist, he actually fell through a grave in this area. And when he landed 10 feet below, he looked up, and directly below the eastern gate is the eastern gate. They built the new eastern gate on top of the old eastern gate, which was right below underneath, about 10 feet below the ground. So kind of some interesting uh, prophecy as we look at Ezekiel. But the one that I really want to share with you if I haven't worn you out with the prophecy stuff yet, is in the book of Daniel. If you go with me to Daniel in the ninth chapter, in verse 24. So starting in verse 24, the ninth chapter of Daniel, he says, and this is a vision that Daniel had received from the Lord. So in this vision, he sees this, that 70 weeks are determined for your people and your holy city, speaking of Jerusalem to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most, the most holy. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks, and the street shall be built again, and the wall, and even in troublesome times, and after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the, and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. So here is a very powerful prophecy that's given to Daniel. Uh, and what we're going to look at is the fulfillment of this prophecy by Jesus in this exact time frame. So when it discusses weeks, what it literally means is weeks, it means sevens. So these weeks are actually a period of seven years. So if, as we look, 62 and 7, that's 69 weeks of years, it's going to be for the Messiah to enter after the order is given for the, the walls of the city to be rebuilt. So the walls of the city were completely leveled and destroyed by the Babylonians. So now this order has to be given, and at that point, there's going to be a trigger for this 483 years. You can check my math. I think I'm close there. For this 483 years, 69 times 7, period. So turn with me back to Nehemiah. In the book of Nehemiah, go to the left. And Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes. And so it's a very high position. And Nehemiah uh, was a cupbearer in the mid-400 B.C. time period, roughly 445 B.C. And his job was to bring the king's wine cup. So it's a very high position. He was in with the king a lot. There was a, a lot of interaction. And what you did not want to do in front of the king is you did not want to walk in grumpy. So Nehemiah, in the first chapter, had just gotten word back from his Jewish brethren that the city walls and the gates were completely destroyed and it was in total shambles. So he walked in to the king with a bit of a sad face on. And the king says to him, why in, in uh, verse 2, why is your face sad since you are not sick? There is nothing but sorrow in your heart. Now at this point, Nehemiah is scared because if, you, if the king sees you sad and your whole job is to bring him wine and make him happy, that's not a good start to your day. But 
Nehemiah answers him very bravely. He says, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city and the place of my father's tombs lies in waste and the gates are burned with fire? And then the king said, what do you request? So what ends up happening then is Nehemiah gets the job of going back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the walls. This is in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. That's the first verse of chapter 2. That's the month of Nisan, roughly our April, our March-April time frame in 445 B.C. So if you're still hanging with me here, hang with me. I'm almost there, I promise. 483 years, and the Babylonian year was a 360-day uh, year, 360-day calendar is what they had. If you take 360 times uh, the 483, you'll come up with 173,880 days, and you add it to 445 B.C. in the month of Nisan, what you'll find is that in 32 A.D., Jesus Christ walked through the gates of Jerusalem, through the eastern gate. Now, what's amazing about that is God is never late. He is never late. He is always exactly as he planned to be. So how big is your God? You know, we all have these things that we're battling through, and we wonder, does God care about this? Is he even worried about this detail? I assure you, as you look through this stuff and you lay out prophecy, even if you're not a prophecy buff, even if you checked out 15 minutes ago, that God is a God of the details. He is going to make sure every jot and every tittle of this gets done exactly the way he laid out. So I love that, that piece of prophecy that Jesus walked in exactly as he planned. And in Luke 19, 41 through 44, I think as he walks through and he sees these things, it gives us a little bit of insight into his mindset. And keep your thumb back there in Daniel, because I promise we're going to do a quick flip back, and I don't want to throw anybody off here. But in verse 41 of Luke 19, he says, Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes, for the days will come when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground, and they will not leave one stone upon another, because you did not make known to the time of your visitation. So here it is, Jesus is walking up saying, oh, if you'd only known as he wept upon the city. And what, what does it say back to Daniel? Uh, going back to Daniel on the 26th verse, and after this 62-week period, after this, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. Literally meaning he had nothing to gain. That's what that means. Not for himself means he did it all with nothing to gain. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. So right here, this prophecy is saying that after Jesus' entry, and in 70 A.D., the Romans marched in and completely obliterated Jerusalem. Not one stone was left upon another. That's why gates get built on top of gates, because the city was completely leveled. The people were decimated. So what Jesus is lamenting over is seeing these events coming in the future, and realizing that, that they're completely missing the boat. He is heartbroken, even though he knew that they were going to check out on him. He's still heartbroken over this fact. He still wants to draw us in. All right. Done with the prophecy. You survived. Good job, everybody. Good job. All right, back to Mark. Back to the text. 
we're going to be picking up in verse 12 as Jesus curses a tree. Starting in verse 12. Now the next day, when they had come out from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing from afar a fig tree having leaves, he went to see if perhaps he would find something, something to eat on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And in response, Jesus said to it, Let no one eat from this fruit, let no one eat fruit from you ever again. And his disciples heard it. So here's Jesus cursing this tree because it didn't have figs, even though it wasn't fig season. So you have to ask yourself this question Was Jesus hangry? My kids accuse me of this all the time of being so hungry, I'm angry. And I don't think that's the case in this, in this spot. He wasn't hangry. But what Jesus was trying to do was, again, he's always teaching. He's trying to draw a parallel. So throughout the Bible, the nation of Israel is compared to a fig tree. And in Joel, the first chapter, verse 7, what he actually says is this. The prophet Joel, when he's talking about the future desolation of this land, speaking of this times that we just talked about, he has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. So the nation of Israel is compared to this fig tree. And the people of the nation are often compared to the figs themselves. If you go to Jeremiah chapter 24, Jeremiah gets a vision from the Lord. And what his vision is, is there's two baskets full of figs. And the Lord says, what do you see, Jeremiah? And Jeremiah is so quick to answer. He says, figs. There's two baskets. There's a good basket of figs, and there's a rotten basket of figs. And the good basket, the Lord shows Jeremiah, this is to uh, give you a picture of the good people that are still left. I'm going to take them away to Babylon. I'm going to keep them, and then I'm going to bring them back and restore them. And the bad basket was to show him the people that are following King Zedekiah, a very evil guy. I'm going to take them, and I'm going to completely destroy them. So in this comparison, we see the good figs, the bad figs, the good fruit, and the bad fruit. And I think Jesus does a better job than what I've done of explaining this in Luke chapter 13 as he lays out exactly what he's talking about. Keep in mind, he's just lamented over the city and all the things that they're missing out on. And then in Luke... Uh, in this section, he shares with us this parable. And starting in verse 6 of the 13th chapter of Luke, he says, A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of the vineyard, Look, for three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit well, but if not... After that, you can cut it down. So here's this picture of this fig tree, and it's continually year after year not producing fruit. This is the picture of the nation of Israel. Year after year, time after time, God gives them an opportunity. They do not produce fruit, so he's going to cut them down. Now, thankfully for us, our Lord is merciful. And if you get the opportunity to go back to Israel today, you'll see them getting a second chance. That tree's been replanted. It's getting some fertilizer around it. God is once again trying to draw fruit out of these people. And I think it's really easy for us to kind of look at this and rail on the nation of Israel, but then I think about how many seasons in my life I've gone without producing any fruit. And I think about how many times uh, I've been in the spot where I've not produced any fruit, and yet he's given me chance after chance 
where finally some fertilizer of the word and a little bit of water of prayer, there's maybe a few blossoms starting to come out. So that's really the parallel that we see in this, is that in our own lives, do we just look like a fig tree that should be producing fruit? Because keep in mind, Jesus walked over to this tree after seeing it from afar off. It looked like a good fig tree. Do we in our spot play church? Do we look like a good fig tree? We got it all together on the outside until we get closer examination. There's no fruit there. So that's really the the parallels that we can see that before we're too quick to judge the nation of Israel, we've got to look internally and see what we've got going on with our own tree. Well, I'm all positive tonight, you know. It's all positivity coming out. I promise we're going to wrap up here with something positive. Here we go. Jesus, starting in verse 15, back to Mark. If I can get back there. Starting in verse 15. So... They came to Jerusalem. Then Jesus went into the temple and began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. And he taught them, saying to them, It is, it is not written, My house shall be called, is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of thieves. And the scribes and the chief priests heard it, and sought how they might destroy him, for they feared him, because all the people were astonished at his teaching. When evening had come, he went out of the city. So here's Jesus entering the temple, and he's absolutely cleaning house. Because he walks in, 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 in this case, for the second time. The first is actually recorded in John chapter 2, where he's got to come in and clean out these people that are, that are doing these evil practices. They're selling these things at a marked up price. So you're coming to the temple for a sacrifice. Oh, I'm sorry, the sheep you brought, there's a blemish there. But we do have one over here for sale. Very nice. It's twice as much as what you'd pay on the open market. Sorry about that. So they're, they're actually uh, extorting the people, and Jesus isn't going to stand for it. So here's Jesus, this picture of meekness, right? So I put a couple uh, examples up here of meekness or some phrases to go over this. And yet we see him very strongly, very emphatically running people off. And in John's gospel, in that first time, he actually fashioned himself a whip and he was chasing people out with a whip. So meekness is not weakness. It is power under control. And when I think about power under control in my own life and an example of this, uh, I want to just talk to you briefly about a man by the name of Wilford Maurice Ashley. Mo, as he was known uh, by most of his family and friends, is my paternal grandfather. And the best way to describe him physically would be to call him a mountain of a man. He was a big dude, six feet, five inches tall, 300 pounds. He played college football uh, at Eastern Illinois University for two years before he transferred to what is now Missouri S&T. At that time, it was Missouri School of Mines, where he uh, even though he came from a family of only maybe two high school graduates, he got a degree in petroleum engineering. Was one of the most intelligent men, if not the most, that I ever have known. And he was this picture of power, and yet he was always so kind and loving to people. People that knew him loved to be around him. They loved to do business with him because he was just always so logical and never seemed to lose his temper. He just was this picture of power, and yet he always uh, brought such a calm presence. But two things would really fire up Mo Ashley. One of them was food. As I said, he was a big guy. 
If you got in the way of him and a meal, you were probably in trouble. And one of my favorite stories is he was taking the family uh, down to Florida on a family vacation, and he loved to stop in any of these little roadside restaurants and places. He would have loved the catfish kettle, for example. That was his kind of spot. Quantity over quality, anytime. So he, he sees this sign on the roadside that says, all you can drink, orange juice for a dollar. And he loved O.J., he loved him some O.J., so he pulls over, and the family piles out, and he slaps his dollar down on the table, and the waitress brings over the first glass of orange juice, and he pounds that thing, and the second, and the third, and the fourth. And, but something happened after the eighth glass. She quit bringing him any more orange juice. And he starts to get a little upset, and he calls her over, and he says, Hey, what's going on here? I, I need some orange juice. And she refuses to bring him another glass. And he says, well, the sign out there says, all you can drink orange juice for a dollar. And she looks at him and says, yeah, and eight glasses is all you can drink for a dollar. <laughs> so he always got a kick out of that. The eight glasses is all you're going to get for a dollar. But the story as it relates to sports, I got a little sidetracked with that one that I really want to share with you, is uh, at this time, it's the early 1970s, and my dad is on the junior varsity basketball team, and we're playing the cross-county rivals at their place. So it's uh, Marshall, Illinois' little town. We're from Casey, Illinois. It'd be similar to you guys going up to North County, if I had to guess. So they're up there at this gym, and dad's playing JV basketball. He was just a freshman, so he didn't dress on the varsity. And Mo and his wife, Roberta, and by the way, that's actually them in the top right. That's uh, my grandfather and my grandmother with the big smile on his face on their wedding day. And so they're sitting in the stands, and right in the row in front of them from Marshall's, one of these mouthers. And this guy is just mouthing the whole game, just over, railing on everybody, railing on the refs, just blah, 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 the whole junior varsity game. And Grandpa sat there with that big smile on his face, very graciously listening to the guy, not saying a word. When my dad, uh, in between the game, after the JV game, uh, they would actually make the guys that weren't dressing varsity dress up and wear something nice. I don't know if they still do this to this day, where they make you put on your street clothes and actually dress up. But Dad gets ready to walk by, and as he's proceeding, apparently Dad was wearing white patent leather boots. Now, I don't know if that's a fashion faux pas at that time. You're talking about the uh, early 70s John Travolta Saturday Night Fever era, so maybe it wasn't. But Dad walks by in his white leather boots, and the mouther, sitting in front of Grandma and Grandpa, says, Hey, look at the queer in the white boots. And at that point, the mouther didn't say anything else because he was laying on the floor three rows in front of him. You see, this power that was there behind him the entire time uh, was not completely under control. Once someone he loved and cared about was threatened, uh, the mouther found himself on the ground. Now, the school officials came over and, and very politely told my grandfather, who was much larger than them, that they were going to you know, mow. We didn't know him well. I think he was actually a school board president at the time. Uh, <laughs> they said, Mo, we're, we're going to have to ask you to, to leave. And very calmly, he said at what's kind of famous words in our family, in his deep baritone voice, he said, well, I've been thrown out of way classier places than this. <laughs> and he just got up, and he walked out of the gym, completely in control again. But that's this, this power he had over himself for the most part. And before you think that uh, I'm trying to justify dotting people in the forehead at basketball games, uh, that's not my point here. But there are times in our lives where we do have to stand up for things. You know, we are called to be meek, which synonyms are humble and submissive, but we're submissive to the Father's will. But there are times where we have to stand up, 
for the things that we love and we care about and the things that are in God's will. But before we get all carried away and have ourselves a Nehemiah ministry and we just start plucking people's beards out and smacking people at basketball games, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, what Paul says in verse 9 is this, or verse 19, I'm sorry. It's hmm. a bad reference there, I think. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Sorry, verse 19 is where we want to be. All right. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So the temple of God is actually our body. So as we look at Jesus very zealously going to town and cleaning out the temple, what we first have to ask ourselves before we go out and we start trying to clean other people's temples up is, how am I doing with my own temple? And where am I at as far as chasing off the money changers and the things that I continue to let back into this temple? That we've got to pray for that. We've got to pray that God, examine this place. Jesus, come in here and clean this thing out. Because what's important about that is in verse 17, that once Jesus had cleaned the temple out, then he taught. That the teaching didn't occur before he cleansed the temple. He had to cleanse the temple first, and then he was able to do that. And do I, do I have that kind of zealousness about myself when it comes to cleaning up the things that I like to keep tucked away? I can, I can clean the temple up, I can sweep it and shove the stuff off to the sides, but in the corners, where are the things that I'm still hanging on to? And that's really what I found myself as I was going through it this week asking, you know, where's the stuff that I'm still not ready to let go of? Or what are, where are the things at that I'm not ready to smack in the head and just get out of my life that I want to kind of throw a pillow at, a little pillow fight? I, I, instead, we've got to get to this point where we're zealous, where we're going after these things, to chase them out of our lives. That's the only way that Jesus can do any real teaching. And I think that's really the parallel to draw from as we see Jesus cleansing the temple. Are we in a spot where we're ready to cleanse our temple and clean out our lives completely and wholly for him? So let's pray. Well, Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this group that's out here and gathered. I pray, Lord, that, uh, that you would allow us as we go out through the rest of our weeks to truly do what we talked about tonight, that we would examine these things, that we would e examine the stuff that maybe is still clogged in our temple uh, that, that we're not willing to get rid of, that we're not willing to let go of, these things that hold us back, that stop us from doing your will. So, Father, just like you had your face set on Jerusalem, to ultimately accomplish the will of the Father. I pray for each one of us that we would have our face set on the things that are before us. We may not always know uh, your will in our lives, but we would be set to do them and, and to accomplish them as you reveal them. So, Lord, if there's anyone here that, uh, that doesn't know and doesn't have a right relationship with you, I pray, Father, that right there where they sit, that they would find the time 
So just ask you for that. Just ask you for that cleansing, for that precious blood of your Holy Spirit to be poured out upon them so that they can come into a right relationship. Because, Lord, these times that we are in are a prophetic time. There are gates being closed in. There are, there are people uh, starting already for some of these things to be fulfilled, and, and the time is at hand for us to make these decisions. So, Lord, I pray for anybody here tonight that be in that spot, that they would uh, feel free to come up and talk to anybody that they'd like to uh, about your salvation and about what you have to offer, which is peace loving kindness. So we thank you so much for that. And we pray all these things in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you all stand and we'll sing one more song tonight.